0: All right, let's go Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word to reveal himself to his people, to show us how to live and to show us the way of salvation. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're at a disadvantage in learning those things. And so we can fix that today by sending you home with a very, very cheap paperback Bible. It's great. If you want a real one, we have a lost and found. All right, but here's the deal. Um, we have got all kinds of things going on this morning, and I'm going to talk fast because, well, we're running late. So here's the deal. We kicked off a brand new series last week called The Already But Not Yet Kingdom. There's our artwork. Isn't it great? Ooh, ah, ooh la la. The already but not yet kingdom is based off of something that that happens in Matthew uh, chapter four and five. In the end of Matthew chapter four, uh, we're told that great crowds are beginning to gather around Jesus. And it tells us there that Jesus goes around to all the villages and all the synagogues in his little local area, the place he would have called home. He goes around to all these places preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's gathering these crowds around him. And everybody wants to to hear him teach because he's teaching with a charisma and an authority that they hadn't had to reckon with before. Like... They don't know what to do with that. They don't know how to file it away, but he's teaching like that. And so he's starting to draw a crowd and he's performing these miracles that show that he's, well, he's not just some guy with some extra charisma. He's actually backing up his, this gospel kingdom message. And so he's gathering this crowd for himself. And, and in Matthew chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus sits down on a hillside and begins to teach this crowd. And so, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, this little series that we're working through up till Easter, is what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's a sermon that happens on the side of a. You get it, right? We Christians, we're really creative when it comes to stuff. All right? But here's the deal. Jesus teaches this crowd that's wanting to follow him everywhere he goes, and they want to hear him put the Pharisees in their place, and he wants to hear him speak with authority on God's law, and they want to see a miracle or two. Everybody's trying to get a little piece of Jesus. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is the largest chunk of single piece of teaching that we get from Jesus throughout the Gospels. There's other large chunks, but this is the biggest. And so that leads some commentators to call this the King's Manifesto. We talked about that last week. The King's Manifesto, this this idea that if you want to get into the mind of Jesus, one of the first places you need to look is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you were to boil down the whole sermon into one single phrase, I think it would be this. In Christ's already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom that's here but also yet coming still. What a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. If you were to boil down the sermon to just one thought, now it's hard to do, but if you were to boil it down to one singular thought, what a man is is the chief influence in what a man does. And so last week we started off by looking at the Beatitudes, right? Eight little blessed are you statements that on the surface seem upside down from the way the world actually works, right? Like who gets excited about mourning? And who thinks that it's blessed to be poor in spirit? Well, Jesus does. And so what we said last week that either A, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, or B, Jesus is the only one who knows what he's talking about. And so he kicks this all off by saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And what we said last week, in other words, is how fortunate you are to be humbled by God. Because those who have seen God correctly can now see themselves correctly. And they can see their sin correctly. And they can be mournful over their sin. And they can be shaped by God and who he's calling them to be. And they can be used by God for his good purposes. Each of the Beatitudes flow into themselves. Build off of each other. Forget about what the world says is most valuable in this world. They don't know. The king of this domain says otherwise. Because the king of the already yet, already but not yet kingdom knows better than they do. And he says that he's giving his kingdom to those who have been humbled by him humbled by him. The kingdom of God is for even you, is what we discovered last week. Forget about what the world says ought to gain you something here. The king of this kingdom says he's got specific plans for his kingdom and he ain't giving it to the heavy-handed and he's not giving it to those who have advanced themselves in this way and that way. No, 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 he's giving it to those who have been humbled before him. when we put this upside-down kingdom reality on display to a world that's never seen it before, two things are going to be happening. It'll be both attractive and it will be attacked. It'll be attractive and it will be attacked. It'll be both misunderstood and it will be reviled and it will be a salty taste in a tasteless world. It'll be a light to those who have lived their entire lives in the dark. So you all ready to jump into the next part because the kingdom rolls on. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so already we get a little bit of a tone change here, right? Like, like coming out of the Beatitudes, Jesus kind of has this tone of everybody's invited, come along. But here... He kind of changes tones, and this sounds a lot more like a threat, right? What does he say in verse 17? Do not think, don't you dare think, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So, what, what's that about? Well, there's some debate, actually. Sometimes when the New Testament refers to the law, it's talking about, specifically about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when the New Testament refers to the law, it's talking about the Ten Commandments plus all the Levitical laws surrounding them, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, the civil law, uh, all of this stuff that gets folded into the life and the history and the the daily life of Israel. So it's talking about that. Sometimes when the New Testament talks about the law, it's talking about all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the whole story of God saving his people and calling them to himself and creating a, a people for himself. But there's a little descriptor a little identifier here that we also get that helps brings clarity what did it say the law and the what the prophets so we're not just talking about the law here we're talking about the law and the prophets and so whenever the new testament uses this little phrase it's usually using that as a placeholder for all of the old testament or we could probably drill down just a little bit and say i think jesus is speaking here specifically of every single one of god's commands and promises throughout the old testament Every single one of them. And Jesus says that not one little stroke of the pen. The ESV says not an iota, not a dot. Some of you grew up reading the King James, and so it's, you're, you memorize not a jot or a tittle, right? So what's a tittle? Because you've got to explain that to me. <laughs> a tittle is a, a pin stroke. Our, our graphic designer friends call them serifs now. It's that little pinstroke that takes a normal letter and makes it decorative. That's a tittle. One little dash, one little curl, one little whatever. Jesus says, not one little pinstroke is going to be going away, but rather fulfilled by him. This is a major theme of our Story of God series that we walked through all of last year, right? That Jesus is the fulfillment of everything commanded and promised. So why would Jesus take the time to point this out here? Well, it's probably helpful to understand the world that Jesus is speaking and preaching into. Good preachers do that, by the way. They, they understand the audience that they have in front of them and speak to the audience that's in front of them. If you had a good preacher, you'd have a living example, but you've got to deal with me instead. Here's, Jesus, though, understands his audience and he speaks directly to his audience. So who is his audience? Well, uh, I got a couple of uh, slides for you. Garrett's got it for me in the back. All right, so uh, there are four major, basically theological, political camps. And that number goes up and down depending on where you want to draw the lines. But for our purposes today, four major theological, political camps. And they're these. Uh, we got them on the slides? No? There they are. All right, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. So who are those groups? Well, the Pharisees are the rule keepers. They're the rule keepers. They, they took oaths to follow God's law as best as they could. They structured their lives around uh, this oath to, to follow not only God's written law, but the oral traditions, the oral law surrounding and helping to define God's law. And if you were to compare your life up against the life of a Pharisee, they got you beat when it comes to external righteousness. Like if we're going to play the little game where, where I'm going to try to be more righteous than the Pharisee, I'm going to lose every single day because they outpace me in every single way. The Pharisees were the rule keepers, and they were really, really good at it. The second group, though, was the Sadducees. And they rejected the oral teachings surrounding the law, and they rejected a lot of the Really spiritual sounding stuff. Many of the miracles, they, they rejected things like uh, uh, the resurrection of the dead after uh, when, when God would come back and all these kinds of things because they were far, far too sophisticated for that kind of stuff. That was the Sadducees. They were highly influenced by Hellenistic thought that had crept into Jewish culture from the Greek world. And so they were, they were, they were too proper for that. They had set those things aside and they didn't need them, right? What was the third group? The Essenes. They were the ascetics. They thought the first two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were all losers, who didn't understand that what God really wanted was for you to go off and live the monastic life. Bury yourself away in a cave somewhere, practice your prayers, read your scriptures, and just do your little thing in quiet solitude with yourself and your spiritual disciplines and your pride. That was the Essenes. They also believed that God would probably end the world very, very, very soon, so they usually practice a form of celibacy. So the Essenes didn't last very long. And then there was the fourth group, the Zealots. And the Zealots were the exact opposite of the Essenes. They were the proletariat mass who wanted to overthrow Roman tyranny. They were the ones who wanted to take back what they thought was theirs by force. And so instead of isolating themselves and living monastically, they infiltrated and sought to overthrow They were constantly starting little insurrections and revolutions, and ultimately, this is the reason why Titus comes in and wipes out the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because they got a little ornery, and Rome decided to do something about it. So Titus marched his army in, and after a little while, no more temple. Their movement didn't last very long either. And so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, and and those are the the four major ideological corners just pulling on the people in this crowd when Jesus is speaking here. So why is that important to know? Well, because Jesus is going to intentionally make every one of these groups mad during the course of his sermon. Just systematically goes through them. He is one of those equal opportunity offenders that this world likes so much. So what does he start with? He kind of starts with the Sadducees. Remember, they, 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 they rejected much of the law. They had the written law, and they honored that. They gave lip service to that, but they rejected all the oral teachings surrounding the law, right? And so they kind of had this liberalized approach to things in the theological sense. And so and Jesus says what? Hey, the law and the prophets, it ain't going away. It's not going away. I haven't come to abolish these things. I've come to fulfill every pin stroke of these things. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. They're still here and they're sticking around for a while. In fact, they're never going away. Don't act like you can just ignore this. Don't act like you can just relax what you don't like and fold in from other sources what you do like. God's word is not going away. It will be fulfilled, he says. But just as quickly, Jesus begins to lay into the Pharisees. Directly, it it appears here. Look at verse 20 with me. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the who? The scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Heaven. So, if the Pharisees are the rule keepers, if they're more righteous than everybody else around them, and Jesus, the king of this coming kingdom, says that they're not righteous enough, that that even the Pharisees don't have what it takes, then, well, who exactly does get into Christ's kingdom? Like, if the Pharisees are going to beat me in the law-keeping contest, what hope do I have? At all. If they don't have enough righteousness in the tank, well, then I, I'm guaranteed that I don't. I have no hope, actually. Now, you'd think that this is where Sweet Little never offended anybody in his life. Jesus would turn around and gently say, Hey, I have a better way for you. But Jesus is just getting warmed up, apparently, because look what he says next in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to, liable to the hell of fire. And so if you are offering your, uh, your gift on the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and Go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest, he, um, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, but I say. That is a bold statement. Are you allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say that? Jesus, though, is allowed to say that. You have heard that it was said, but I say Jesus is teaching with an authority here that they have never come close to reckoning with before. One of Matthew's larger purposes in his gospel account is to kind of frame Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, to show that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but the Foretold, promised, expected Jewish Messiah, and so over and over in Matthew's gospel account, you're going to hear him say, "And to it, it fulfill what was written, and thus it was said, and all these kinds of things." And so Matthew is showing over and over again that Jesus is not simply some new man on the scene, but exactly who the Jews were expecting to be coming down the pipe. And we see Jesus begin to assert some of his authority here because Moses, the the great lawgiver of God's people, well, he only ever repeated God's word. He was a messenger passing along a message. Jesus, though, Hebrews 3 3 tells us in verbatim that Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses repeated God's word, but Jesus is God's word. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So is Jesus adding to the law here? No but he is showing us the sinful fountain that all of our sinful actions flow out of. What a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does, remember? Proverbs 16, 2 says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit or weighs the motives. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Revelation 2, 23b, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus says, hey, you think that because you've managed to never lay your hands on someone in anger because you've never actually killed someone or physically harmed someone, you think that I'm pleased with you or impressed by that? I know what's actually in your heart. You think that because you've, you think I owe you something because you've kept yourself from some terrible action? I know what's really there. I know that same kernel of sin in you that would cause you to be angry with your brother or insult your brother or even something as seemingly small to us as calling them a fool. I know that that's the same sin in you that would lead you all the way to actually physically harming them. I know what's really in you. Should I be impressed that you white-knuckled your way to a slightly less terrible result? Am I supposed to be impressed that you steered the ship into a less dangerous looking rock? Without stopping for discussion, without inviting some diversity of input from the crowd, Jesus, he just keeps going. Verse 27 says this, You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus says, I know what's in your heart. You think I'm impressed that you white-knuckled your way into not acting on your lust? That extended gaze, that, that moment of what if? You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It says that if you truly knew how terrible the punishment for sin was, if you truly comprehended how terrible hell and the wrath of God on sin actually is, no, you'd go to extreme effort to prevent it. In other words, you see your sin fondly because you are tragically blind to what it actually leads to. The wrath of God. But again, Jesus just keeps going here. Look at the next part. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is the shortest paragraph that we're going to look at this morning, but it is absolutely going to be the most frustrating for us today because this is the air we breathe in our culture, right? But didn't Jesus just make an allowance under the case of adultery? Yep. Doesn't Paul come in later and make an allowance for desertion? Yeah, it seems like he does. It doesn't look like either of them explicitly rule out remarriage in those cases. Yeah, I think you're right. But Jesus knows your heart. He knows what's really inside of us, and despite whatever you might tell our... Yourself or ourselves, justified to ourselves, the judge of all the earth weighs our motives. He weighs our motives. And this is why I say all the time that divorce cannot happen without at least one terribly sinful party. We can be honest here, it's usually both. Just, it's usually both. Because this is the air we breathe, because we have a, as a culture have elevated autonomy and elevated our pursuit of happiness despite what it may cost other people, we'll slough off the lust thing and we'll slough off the anger thing, but this one's going to earn me an angry email this week. But what did we say last week? If our knee-jerk reaction to hearing the king of this kingdom spell out how his kingdom works, if our knee-jerk reaction to say, ah, you do not know what he's talking about, then either A, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, or B, Jesus is the only one who knows what he's talking about. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jesus doesn't understand my specific situation. But just like before, he doesn't invite feedback. He simply moves on to the next piece of his sermon. So look at that with me, verse 33. Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, lest what you say be simply yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil." Jesus says you you might try to make yourself look bigger, like a bigger deal than you are with these silly little odes you take, but at the end of the day, you're a creature, not creator. The things you swear upon, you don't actually own those. They don't belong to you. Even the, the hair on your head, the gray hair that's up there, that doesn't belong to you either. It belongs to me. You can't make one hair white or black. It's under my control, not yours. You may succeed in impressing whoever you're swearing that oath to, but I'm not impressed. I know what's in your heart. I know how desperate you are for success and for approval and for respect. And I see what's really actually in you, the kernel of sin in your heart that causes you to try and inflate your words and the way you talk to people. What a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. So if you're still hanging with me this morning, if you haven't gotten all mad and tuned me out yet, I would imagine you're sitting there thinking to yourself, for goodness sakes, who in the world can be saved then? I mean, that's that's the burden I feel, right? Who in the world can live up to this? Who can actually live up to God's standard? And I think that's exactly the message that Jesus is trying to send right now. You can't. You can't live up to God's standard. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. Never, never. The righteousness that is required in Christ's kingdom, the minimum level for entrance into his kingdom is one that neither you nor I can attain with what we bring to the table, even on our best day, if that's all he counted. We have no hope unless, unless something or someone outside of us acts upon us. You know, unless the only one who ever actually met the standard of righteousness for his kingdom were to, I don't know, give us his. And so while Jesus was willing and able to deliver his great manifesto about the inner workings and realities of his kingdom on a mountainside, that is not the ultimate reason why he came. The ultimate purpose for his putting on flesh and dwelling among us was in order to be a substitute a substitute, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus pays the debt. We've heard that over and over again this morning through music, through prayer. Jesus pays the debt of our failure to live up to his standard of righteousness and unites us to himself in his life. Romans 3 explains it this way. You got it for me on the screen? Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets... Yeah, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that we don't always use in our culture. Think of it like a payment. It's much bigger than that. It's a payment of sacrifice where sacrifice and mercy meet. It's awesome. Put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Keep going, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Bible teaches us over and over and over again that the entire reason that the eternal Son of God stepped foot into human history was because the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to an infinitely sinless God was for God himself to take our sin upon himself to pay that debt and to give us his righteousness in return. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's some good news for you, church, because his does. And he is pleased to share it with you. So now those who in faith call on Jesus as Lord are actually declared Righteous, the theological word we use is justified before him because the Father accounts, credits Jesus' righteousness as your very own. That when God sees his people, he sees not our failure, but Jesus' faithfulness instead. So what does that mean for the lofty standard of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount then, right? I mean, what do we do with this standard of righteousness after we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus given or imputed to us through faith? I mean, don't we still feel the sting of this? Don't we still struggle as we walk through this? What should we do with it? What are justified sinners who fail daily in anger and daily in lust and daily in broken covenants and daily in inflated speech to do with the Sermon on the Mount? We chase God-breathed, grace-sustaining sanctification. God's commands are eternally consistent with his character. Our king looks like this, so we want to look like this too. We want to look like this too. And we'll never get all the way there, this side of heaven. In fact, you may wrestle with this for the rest of your days, but last week in the Beatitudes, Jesus told us that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied, so go feasting for it. Jesus seems to think that what a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. So lean into who he's declared you to be and then get busy chasing where he takes it from there. The already but not yet kingdom keeps rolling forward. So, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to, to press into God today. And you, you, you do that by leaning in, simultaneously trusting His finished work to, in you, in spite of you, and by pressing deeper into the righteousness He's called you into. I think you've got to do both of those things. Lean into who He's declared you to be, enacted in you, made you to be, and get busy chasing after what he's working in you still. I think you'd also take this upside down kingdom message to those who don't know it yet. The king knows the heart of his creation. And these are universal failures we're talking about here this morning, aren't they? I mean, do you, can you think of anybody off the top of your head who doesn't struggle with these things? Somehow, like, I'd love to get some advice from them. <laughs> of course they do. It is good news to a desperate soul to hear the problem is, yes, far worse than they actually understand. But also, the solution is way better than they could ever imagine. So who has God put in your pathway this week that needs to hear about this upside-down king? I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing, we'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word today too. And you do that by calling on Jesus as Lord. You repent of your sin. You come to him alone in faith. I'd love to walk you through what that next step looks like. So I'm going to pray. I'll be down here if you want to talk about it. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. God, help us feel The weightiness of our sin. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. I know that that sounds like the wrong thing to do in the world that we live in. But help us feel our absolute failure, our inability to attain the righteousness that you require. Help us see our position before you this morning. As those who have nothing to offer you that you want or need. It has nothing to offer you that you would be impressed with because you know the real us. Despite how we, how we might pretty it up on the outside, you know what's going down deep inside of me. Oh, but it's when we see you and ourselves correctly that you give us comfort by calling us to yourself. And that is what I really want. And so if feeling the The heinousness and the weight of my sin this morning pulls me another step closer. That sounds like a good thing. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to people today? Would you awaken hearts to know you, would you call them to yourself? Will people call on you in faith this morning? May we all respond well. In your name we pray. Amen.